0: From Mushroom, this is some of my best work. I'm Jane Rocker. A special episode with Tim Wheatley, artist and son of Glenn Wheatley.
1: I remember the first time I saw my father cry was at Christmas when we were living in Los Angeles. I asked him, I said, why why are you crying? He said, my parents would have loved to have seen you all.
0: Glenn Wheatley was a legendary Australian talent manager, promoter and musician himself in The Master's Apprentices. Known for his reach across both music and media, he steered both John Farnham and Delta Goodrum to the top of the Australian music charts. In February, 2022, he died from health complications caused by COVID. And now his son, Tim, has released a version of The Master's Apprentices hit, Because I Love You. The cover has also been included in the new audiobook of Glenn's autobiography, Paper Paradise, read by Glenn himself. And like Glenn, Tim moved between Melbourne, London, and Los Angeles, focused on music all the way. As you'll hear, the song has become more than a hit to the Wheatleys, it's very much in and of the family now. Here's Tim Wheatley on this very special episode of Some of My Best Work. Tim, thank you so much for taking part in an episode of Some of My Best Work to talk, well, a great song, but also about your dad, the late and great Glenn Wheatley, and just realising that it wasn't that long ago that he passed. So having you on this show and to be able to share these words or what's about to come with you, I, I really appreciate. So thank you.
1: No, thank you for having me, Jane. It's um, it's becoming quite a cathartic experience for me, actually, sharing a lot of stuff about my old man in, in these dark days.
0: We'll go easy. I guess let's talk about the song that we've chosen um, to discuss for this episode. It's Because I Love You, The Master's Apprentices, and you've done a version of it, which we will get to. But tell us a little about maybe first hearing this song or, or knowing what this song meant even to your dad when he was in the band.
1: First of all, they did it. In London, back in 1971, at Abbey Road Studios, and the masters took to the ocean, jumped on the piano first, uh, and their future was incredibly uncertain. I think lyrically, Jim and Doug hit the nail on the head with a with a song of sort of longing for love back home. And um, these guys were doing it hard in London, and and like I said, in very uncertain times. So in a sense, the the version that I did as well resonated because it was the exact same scenario. I was there in London, missing home, reflecting on Australia and, more importantly, my folks.
0: Did your dad talk to you about recording this song?
1: In a more broad sense, um, it was recording at Abbey Road. Basically mentioned, you know, it's recorded to a four-track, recorded live. He remembers it being quite tense because um, dynamically the song is quite complicated. And, in fact, when I was recording it, we noticed that Doug actually holds the guitar part for two extra bars every now and again. It's not actually set in stone. You know, it was quite a ramshackle arrangement that they were going through and, and like Dad said, quite stressful because the wrath of um, Doug Ford, apparently, in the studio is not something that anyone wanted.
0: (laughs) (laughs) And the other link to this conversation too is that there's the audio that your dad, well, he basically read the book that he wrote, uh, an audio book, and that was something that you guys didn't know about, right?
1: My sisters knew about it. Uh, They were in lockdown with him here. The only thing I'd spoken to him about was I sent him a link to a a Jerry Weintraub audio book, and he came back to me with uh, McConaughey's and Johnny Depp reading Keith Richards, and I knew that he was going to do something like this because once he gets a taste for these things or is... Um, enthusiastic about something he's going to go ahead and do it which is he's just he bookended everything he's meticulous he's nostalgic he's sentimental he he finishes what he starts you know regardless of who, who tells him no and what's impossible he wanted to do the whole recording in one sitting but he kept getting sent home because he kept muddling up words and getting exhausted basically doing it so such was his dedication and ambition to get it done so I'm I wasn't surprised at all. He wasn't a guy that ever made excuses or really explained himself or his actions or why these things happened. You know, a lot of people would come out going, "That was unfair. That was unfair. This wasn't. This is. This is what really happened." He wasn't a guy that did that. He just carried on. So I never really knew like some of the the, the hard luck things. And as a young man back then, I go, "That's unfair. You, you, you've we got to go back and rectify that. You can't just take that lying down." He's like, "Well, we did. <laughs> that happened a long time ago." <laughs> So, you know, there, there was a lot of things and that, that staggered me and that I learnt about him um, through that book.
0: Yeah, and something that I read too where I think you sort of say he was quite a sentimental guy, so it's kind of inevitable that maybe this was what he was going to do as well, right?
1: I'm, I'm sitting four feet away and running my hands along the collection of moleskins and diaries that he's kept since 1961. His handwriting is just as illegible as it always was. Um, and uh, like he, I don't know what he was keeping. It's almost like Instagram before it was around. But on the back of every photo that he ever took as well is, when we're going through his stuff, um, is a description. And now that I had a daughter under three weeks after he passed, she's gonna be able to hear his life story being told in his words, in his voice, it brings me such peace of mind and leads me to believe that people should think about doing this with their loved ones because I've got this for life. I'm going to treasure this. It's probably one of the most valuable things that we own.
0: I do hear this a lot. I mean, I had this conversation with a friend of mine who's also a journalist whose mother, you know, was a Holocaust survivor who died and recorded her stories. And and we have those. And there is something in that, isn't there, that we do take it for granted a little bit sometimes you think we'll get around to it one day but we don't really know yeah
1: I'm not sure when we're going to need it um, but it's there you know it's there and you know I mean I'm I'm no stranger to his life story either I'd ask him if he wanted a cup of tea and get his life story <laughs> I'm glad we've got it one last time
0: now tell me this particular song because I love you what is it sort of stirring you and also you performed it with them uh, quite a while back too didn't you
1: I did. I actually performed um while Dad was running around with um John Farnham on the last time tour, I was running around with his original lineup with the band um Jim Colin and Doug playing with The Long Way to the Top tour, and we were doing arena tours and um what was an amazing experience just rolling around the country with um There should be a movie, I know there's a DVD, but there really should be a movie made about all these old rockers getting together and travelling the countryside again because it was cliche after cliche, spinal tap moment after spinal tap moment. The sentiment behind the song is do what you want to do, be what you want to be. That was something that throughout my entire life with my father was, was echoed to me and encouraged. It's an anthem to our life with him, strangely enough, and to be able to play it with his band was one of the more memorable things that i've ever done i mean and you know especially since we've lost jim as well so to be able to get that opportunity was you know pretty special
0: now you mentioned some spinal tap moments go on you have to elaborate a little bit make us laugh what were some funny things that were happening
1: uh simple things like they like just like guys trying to work their mobile phones trying <laughs> guys you know struggling at sound check you know they some of them had never experienced foldback before they're like what do you mean the, the sound's coming back at me it's not just projected out of an amplifier behind me they were staggered by uh modern technology i think we i think about i think we the bus had to turn around uh, at least a dozen times to go and pick people up uh <laughs> Who 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 failed to reach the destination? It, it really was it really was special stuff and, and and Max Merritt taking out his eyeball and leaving it places for people to find was just just <laughs> shocking. <laughs> oh
0: wow, you're right. Where were the where were the video cameras for that?
1: Well, there there is a DVD, but you know, yeah. knowing my father, he um, missed the opportunity to actually be in the DVD. So the two nights that they filmed the DVD were the only two nights that he made it to the show. So I missed the cut, sadly. Um, which is very typically uh, limelight stealing Glenn.
0: Tell us a little about, you know, your relationship with your dad when it came to music. I mean, obviously it was so intertwined, wasn't it? Because I've heard and read that you were always there as a kid, as a 16-year-old, whatever, going with him to whatever he was doing work-wise as well. So I don't know, was it that you... Apart from just doing the obvious because it's your dad, did you have sort of deep one-on-ones talking about music and, and you asking him about his career? And-
1: I mean, to be honest, Jane, every every damn day from my, the early days, my first band Avenue to the Sparrows, to Rush Cutter, and then I started Crooked Saint. All, all these bands, I was always hiding behind a moniker of some description because when I was younger message boards on the internet and stuff would go off and people would even come to our shows and yell out, you know, play you're the voice and things like that because I was Wheatley's son. The weight of the name really took its toll on me when I was younger. I was always scared and we'd be in interviews with the band and we'd be excited and then questions would be directed at me regarding my father and, and what it's like. And that was tough for other bands. So growing up, I was always really, really conscious to not use those connections, which is so silly because that is what the industry as you know is based on it's not it's not what you know it's who you know and we we hadn't in there but i was always so stubborn and headstrong about not supporting john about not supporting other bands that dad was working with just because it looked like i was getting a leg up so he would constantly drive home the point he goes that is how it works i'm on the phone with these people every day doing them favors and they will do me these favors." and But I just had a serious problem with it. I wanted to do it on my own. It wasn't until I moved to Los Angeles and had my first album coming out that I said, you know what, now that I'm over here, I'm by myself. I am my own man. I'd like to do it under the name Tim Wheatley. And that's actually the first time that I ever performed under Tim Wheatley was over there. Recently during COVID, I released a record with Sony and had a bit of a falling out with Sony because we had to cut the record from an album down to an EP. All of a sudden it didn't make sense to me and my father was the one talking me through why you've got to keep going, why you've got to carry on, why giving up the ghost is is the wrong thing to do. These conversations came on a daily basis and he'd always, always take it back to when he was in the Masters or when he went to London and they were things that we spoke about and remember fondly.
0: I guess even listening to part of that audiobook book just getting a context of yeah here's a guy in Brisbane who in the 60s you know decides i'm going to do something that no one else is really doing at that time i mean your dad was just i guess he he was on a mission wasn't he he knew what he wanted to do
1: yeah on his 18th birthday he got a bus ticket to melbourne i mean which sounds sort of pretty basic these days but it wasn't back then for a, a kid with no income with with no set plan and, you know, the base is just a band that were already waiting for him to come down. And um, people ask me, you know, where do you think he got his resilience from? And I say every time, I have no idea. We lived, we grew up in completely different scenarios. You know, he had to roll the dice and and I was the son of Glenn Wheatley. I, I can't relate to what he went through in the slightest and what had to be done out of, you know, desperation and necessity. And I guess that's where his resilience came from.
0: Do you listen to old masters songs now? I mean, I know that you toured and played with them, but how often do you sort of deep dive back into into that?
1: When I was in London for the last two years, honestly, I went through Choice Cuts and A Toast of Panama Red some point on a daily basis. Mind you, I listen to a lot of music. It always came back down to that. A Toast of Panama Red is one of my favourite, favourite albums and still quite a a secret quite a a hidden gem like you said you sort of got to duck dive into that stuff and because I love you as I said isn't sort of like an anthem for our family
0: tell us about you recording because I love you and just take us back to being in the studio, doing that. What was going through your mind?
1: Well, I had a chance encounter meeting someone that I actually knew. Sounds strange. Justin Stanley of Noise Works fame. We would go to the same coffee shop every morning until I noticed that he was Australian. And then he said, what do you do? And I said, I'm a musician. And one thing led to another. We got to my last name. And he said, your father was the first person to play us on Triple M. we ended up talking and we'd just get together and play music and worked on a few songs for my album Pillar to Post and while we were in the studio doing that we just started jamming Because I Love You and then we played it to the rest of the band mind you the rest of the band at the time included Aaron Sterling who is um, Harry Styles drummer, Taylor Swift's drummer so he took to it like like a duck to water and we actually recorded just for fun a 13 minute version of the song Oh, did you? Um, which basically just went into an instrumental and a jam and then we all caught, came back and and uh, it faded out on the song. So it was complete, and this was in 2017, so it was nearly five years ago that I recorded it. And now we, we didn't think we were going to have a place for it. And once again, it comes back to the weight of the name for me where I sort of felt a bit silly by putting it on, on a record still. I wasn't quite there yet with myself personally. We kept it in the wings. And thank God we did because I don't think at the moment certainly not for a little while, I'd be ready to actually play or record that song. And I think it'd be a bit too much of an emotional, um, You know, it would just be too emotional for me to try and get through it. Um, So I'm so grateful that we did, but we had a little bit of work to do a couple of months ago because at the last minute I wanted to, we were going to put it on the EP, um, but we had to cut it down. So I had to get back in touch with Justin Stanley and say, this: we need to make this a little bit more palatable for radio. (laughs) Uh, And so he got it down to about four minutes, four and a half minutes or something like that, thankfully.
0: I was going to ask you, Tim, I mean, hearing you talk about it took a while for you to sort of feel comfortable to present yourself as a songwriter with the Wheatley surname. What happened for you to kind of get to a point that you were like, I'm ready
1: I don't know if I was if I ever really considered myself ready, but I, when I moved away, all of a sudden, it became important to me to represent my name. It became important to me to represent my father, and wear the name with with pride. Um, I missed him a great deal. I, in Los Angeles, I was constantly casting my mind back to Australia. That was a different journey for me. London, I wanted to be in. Whereas Los Angeles, I felt like there was more opportunity for me and more things were coming my way. So I didn't necessarily enjoy spending so much time away from home at that stage of my life. I really missed the family. Working hard and I was about to go to South by Southwest. I'd done my first album and I'm going, I'm ready to go. That was it. And then I rang Dad and said, I'm going to go as Tim Wheatley. And it made him very, very happy. And he, well, he quietly said, sort of, about time. He, he sort of thought, you know, this is going to make things a little bit easier for us now, which, you know, like I said earlier, was what I was afraid of.
0: <laughs> I get it. I mean, I, I'm not you, but it just sounds like absolutely you're, you're an artist in your own right. You want to just do things without anything attached to it.
1: Yeah, yeah, exactly right. And and does seem silly to me now upon reflection, um, you know, like why I was sort of hiding from the name for so long. I played, I think, two or three hundred gigs as Crooked Saint touring Australia for years. And for what? You know, for nothing. You, there's still no name. And when I decided to go as Tim Wheat, it sort of like, it felt like, aside from the experience that it gave me, which made me a, a, a far superior performer, playing to no one will, will really harden you. <laughs> 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 you know, Or, you know, I'll never forget, um, played at the Hogsbreath Cafe in Tamworth on Australia Day for three hours while the cricket was playing. <laughs> and I thought, wow, it doesn't get any harder than that. No, bloody hell, <laughs> that is for long. So, you know, it, it does seem silly to me that I was hiding from that for so long, but at the same time, it hardened me and yeah, totally. made me the performer I am now.
0: Now, maybe we can talk a little about, you know, your dad's legacy and... It is still so soon after he's passed. But I wonder even in these few months you've, you've had a moment to sort of really look back and kind of go, wow, yep, he's done this, he's done that. I mean, there was really no one like him.
1: I think probably the, the thing that I've took away from all of this, everyone reaching out to us um, and everyone's tributes and everyone's That's sympathy as well, was that there's room in this cutthroat music business for nice guys. There's room. You can be a gentleman in this business, which is something I didn't think you could be. I mean, I thought, you know, you've got to be, you got to be brash. There's, there's a lot of competition. You've got to make it known. You've got to sing the loudest if you want to be heard. Sometimes it doesn't have to be like that. You can be a nice, quiet, reserved, polite, honest man in this business.
0: And can I ask you? I mean this is probably quite a bit personal, but it's up to you if you want to answer it, I guess, but even the way you've sort of dealt or or how you are processing the loss of your father, do you think that having your child has has given you a, an extra sense of, well, this is the full circle, you know, we come, we leave, but we've got to keep going.
1: Um, look, I think in the in just days out of London's birth, and, and, and through London's birth, there was a period of, a, of probably a week where it was it was the hardest time for me. Um, I was a little bit of a little bit of anger towards my dad appeared because he wasn't there. Um, you know, on, on the day of London's birth, I had no one to go out and get a drink with. Um, and there was there was there was a lot of a lot of instances and, and you, you're still experiencing everything's a first without him. And it was it was exhausting, and it was really really hard, and that was probably the saddest part for me. Every time I look at London, I think I am sad that my father didn't get to meet you. And I remember I, I was in the same situation with Dad. Dad, I remember the first time I saw my father cry was at Christmas, when we were living in Los Angeles, and I asked him. I said, "Why, why are you crying?" He said, "My parents would have loved to have seen you all," and that was the first time I'd seen a grown man cry, let alone my father, and. I learned that his mother passed just a couple of months before I was born. And so he was experiencing exactly the same thing. And that was probably the most full circle life moment for me was that, you know, you, you, it's time. It's time to step up. When I think back on that, it gives me the strength to do it. I go, my father did it. My father got through it. There's a light at the end of the tunnel. You know, um, you lose your family, you know, and and you create you create more. So, look, I mean, you know, it, it's still early days and I'm still struggling. Obviously, struggling with it and learning to be a father as well.
0: Tim Wheatley, musician and son of the late Glenn Wheatley, speaking about the song Because I Love You, along with a new audiobook of Glenn's autobiography. If you're enjoying the show, tell a friend or leave us a review. We'd also love to get your suggestions for future guests. Who would you like to hear from? You can email us, podcasts at mushroomgroup.com. I'm Jane Rocker. Thanks for listening.